We recently hit yet another huge milestone here at the Cyberwork Podcast, 25,000 YouTube subscribers. Thanks to all of you who watch and listen each week, to those of you who watch the YouTube videos go live and chat with each other in comments, and to everyone who is helping us to grow this great community. To give back, we're now giving you 30 days of team training for teams of 10 or more. Your InfoSec skills account will help your entire team develop their skills and earn CPEs through hundreds of IT and security courses, cloud-hosted cyber ranges, hands-on projects, skills assessments, and certification practice exams. Plus, you can easily monitor, assign, and track training progress with team admin and reporting features. If you have 10 or more people who need skills training, head over to infosecinstitute.com cyberwork or click the link in the description to take advantage of the special offer for cyberwork listeners. And thank you once again for listening to and watching our podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you coming back each week. And on that note, I've got someone I'd like you to meet. So let's begin the episode. Welcome to this week's episode of the Cyberwork with InfoSec podcast. Each week, I sit down with a different industry thought leader, and we discuss the latest cybersecurity trends, how those trends are affecting the work of InfoSec professionals, while offering tips for those trying to break in or move up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Daniel Young is the managing partner and co-founder of Quolabs Technologies, a developer of collaborative and threat-driven security operations platforms. His career includes a stint with the U.S. Department of Defense and the United States Air Force, where he was involved with a variety of digital forensics analyst positions. Digital forensics is an interesting field, but one that can also be a bit murky, and especially one that's handled in different ways in the private sector versus military scenarios versus government applications. So we're going to talk today about large-scale cybersecurity operations across multiple teams and even across continents, as well as the importance of comprehensive threat information sharing, both internally and externally, as well as some of the different ways that uh, forensics can be dealt with in uh, different industries. With nearly 15 years of experience in digital forensics and incident response, Dan Young helps drive the overall direction of his new company, Quolab Technologies, a developer of a, co a collaborative and threat-driven security operations platform. Prior to Quolab, Dan was involved with the U.S. Department of Defense and the United States Air Force in several digital forensics analyst positions. Dan is very passionate about bridging the gap between technological efficiency and human ingenuity and firmly believes that the best way forward as an industry is to focus on collaboration and data sharing at all levels. Dan, welcome to CyberWork today. Thank you very much, Chris. Happy to be here. Uh, good to have you. So um, I want to talk to you first, as we always do with our guests, about your general security journey. How did you first get interested in computers and tech and cybersecurity? Was this something you were interested in before you got into the military? Did you pick it up in the line of duty? No, I uh, picked it up back when I was a young little, uh, you know, warthog, as I would say. Uh, picked it up, started out with an 8086, IBM oh, 8086 wow. with the big old giant floppy drives, you know, yes. the five and a quarters. Oh, yeah. So I put one in for your operating system, one in for the program you're trying to run and load. And so go. I go way back to those days, DOS, you know, 622 was uh, yep. my pride and joy. I loved working at that. Um, from there, it migrated up through gaming as, uh, you know, in the early sure. ages, of, you know, Warcraft is a big thing. They're talking about the relaunch of different things like that oh yeah it's i'm been, talking the heyday of gaming been you know quite the conversation on the slack channels around our job now everyone's working from home <laughs> exactly same here so you know yeah, that's yeah. one of my my challenges with our developers and everything like guys you know um i understand that you're at home and there's all this going on but we can right head in the game. work so yeah head in the game <laughs> right so yeah so i got into gaming uh computer and then from there building my own computers when i went to um and you know building them and then looking working on on doing different things with them, went to college and got taken under the wing by a really good uh, man there at M State College. 
and he brought me into his, he was the lab manager. So he ran all the different labs for the computer sciences and then the, the engineering teams and so forth, as well as the general use labs and had me running, um, helping out in the lab environments, got a lot of experience there, fell passionately in love with uh, that kind of operations space. And then when I joined the Air Force, um, it just took off from there. Okay, well, uh, that, that jumps nicely into my next question here. So uh, can you give me kind of a compressed version of the like the types of projects, positions, or training that you had with uh, the Department of Defense and the Air Force? What were some of the major steps along the way in terms of sort of becoming someone who was, you know, went from, you know, basic programming and gaming into someone who, you know, really understood like forensics and, and, you know, what were some of the milestones that pushed your knowledge forward? So the biggest milestone for me initially was uh, chance, luck, right? Uh, okay. I initially joined the Air Force right after 9-11. Um, you know, it was a heyday of uh, counter, you know, combating uh, Islamic insurgencies and so forth. Uh, joined and went actually to DLI for language school. So I was an Arabic linguist. Mm-hmm. I got to my first duty station and they said, okay, so you have a background in computer science, very strong, as well as you speak Arabic. You want to go to this team that does digital forensics. That was actually my first time I ever really heard of digital forensics outside of uh, some like CSI type stuff. Right. Right. Uh, I'd never touched it. So went in, started uh, playing around in there. Um, Got a lot of training, OJT hands-on training. So they were using my linguistic skills to look at the media that was so capture media, battlefield media is what it was. So cell phones, laptops, and everything that come off of um, of, of uh, different individuals that are captured in the battlefield. So looking through that and finding the intelligence that we needed, um, videos, documents, you know, contact lists, all that good stuff, and then passing that information on. So OJT started out, um, and then there was um, several good courses that I went to, both the DoD courses that the so DC three and some other institutions, uh, Air Force institutions put together these you know, Air Force OSI, for example, has a lot of digital forensics investigators. So they have different courses and recommended paths. Um, and also through SANS Institute, I um, heavily relied on their forensics 408 back in the day and then 508 training, which is the uh, GIAC certified uh, incident, GIAC certified forensics analyst, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So going through those kind of courses and training uh, is really what got my up my game and got me at the professional level I needed to be at. Okay. Uh, so um, I want to sort of pull back and talk about the general concept of, of computer and digital forensics for people who are, you know, just coming to this, you know, maybe they typed in what is digital forensics or whatever. So what are uh, the most common types of forensics cases you are asked to carry out with DOD and with the Air Force? I mean, obviously you can't uh, reveal anything, you know, specific, but what were uh, you know, some of the, the types of things that you were, you were w- working on in these two positions and uh, were there any procedural or technical differences between the way the two departments worked in this respect? Absolutely. Great questions. Uh, so before I answer that, I'm just going to caveat that by saying that I am no longer affiliated with either DOD or the Air Force. I'm okay. wearing a Quillab shirt. So, right. you know, right, of course, <laughs> just once we got all the, the so yep. this is talking about my experiences and my opinions on that. Um, sure. The, the, there was two major types that we worked with. The the typical ones that you would think of, um, you know, counter hackers, right? So working on uh, like blue team activities where you're going in and you're trying to, you're doing hunt activities throughout a network. You're trying to find out how did the intrusion happen? Where did it come from? And then looking at the individual systems, 
laptop, server, whatever it may be that was affected by it and conducting your forensic examination of that device. That's the one type. So that's more like cyber focused. Okay. The other fo uh, focus that I had a lot of my career in as well is that counterterrorism type focus. And that's mm -hmm. focused more on the individual using the, the, the device versus it's a persona approach, right? It's not looking at software. So per se, it's more right. like content on the device. I see. Very similar applications. Yeah. Um, you're still using the same tools across both to acquire the data. It's what you do with that data afterwards that matters, right? Right. Okay. And so, yeah, and you're looking for different clues. You're, you're looking mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, a turn of phrase or, you know, something that could be a, you yeah. know, could mean two things or a keyword or something, right? You're looking at his chat logs if he happened to archive and save them right. off. You know, back in the heyday of Skype, a lot of people like to save their Skype logs or if they right. had, um, you know, your cookies were... <laughs> Were and yeah, or you didn't know you were saving your yeah. chat logs. <laughs> you didn't know, and uh, right. we knew, and we were we were taking advantage of that. Or right. you're looking at the types of media that they're producing, you know, or watching. So you know, you're, they're browsing history, find out. Okay, you right. you're not an extremist, but you're incredibly active on all these different forums. You're looking mm -hmm. at you know, all this violent, vile content. Um, you know, so that's the persona, and then you build out that data and extract not build it out but you extract that data and build out your case based off of what you find in there and pass that on up the chain were you required to sort of watch all of the sort of horrendous horrendously violent stuff or were you able to sort of delegate some of that or did you were you able to say okay i get the point or well there's um just i could go on uh, you've seen some things reason why yeah why i'm not doing it anymore um yeah. i think that so that brings up a very good interesting point about the digital forensic sphere especially from the military context okay um i think and I believe in my colleagues that I've talked to in the law enforcement sector go through the exact same thing. Sure. Um, it's the burnout, right? You, you know, you can only expect somebody to do so many hours, years, whatever it is of watching child pornography before right. the price starts messing with you. Right. Same yeah. thing with violent extremist media. Yep. Um, so, you know, you, I think every professional has to, to reach that point and say, okay, I think I've had enough. I need to step back permanently or step back for a few years or whatever right. the time may be and then maybe come back. So mental health is a big component of that, of that journey. Mm -hmm. um, but you're absolutely right that it involves hours and hours and hours of looking at um, incredibly vile stuff. Um, but you do it knowing that you're, you're doing it for greater good and yeah. not to sound too idealistic, but you truly are. I mean, at the end of the day, um, for law enforcement, going after child pornographers, mm -hmm. they're doing it for the altruistic reason of stopping the people that are engaged yes. in that violent stuff, right? Right. Um, for my context, it was stopping other attacks from happening yes. or catching the guys who are actively plotting um, attacks against our troops, right? So yeah. that's what the focus is. So yeah. that's what yeah, keeps you, your head in the game, keeps you straight, locked on, and keeps you from freaking the hell out. Right. right. And also, I, I think that's worth, I'm glad we brought that up because, you know, you, you might be saying, oh, I want to get involved in, in forensics in the military context, but you don't really think about like, that's what you're going to actually be doing is you're going to be, yes, you're going to be sort of pushed to your limits in this regard. And that's, I mean, the technical side of the job is huge, right? You have to, sure. you have to be passionate, you have to be engaged in it yeah. and, and wanting to, to have an inquisitive mind, right? To go after the data, to go after and look for and seek. But you also have to be able to, like you were just saying, you have to be able to, to handle that data mm -hmm. and understand that, sure, I need to look at this video to find out everything I can about what this guy was doing because I have to detail it for my counterparts in, in uh, like your, the, uh, the DA or whoever else is going to use that data to convict this individual. But you have to counter that with, can I actually spend those hours looking at and watching this type of data? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that's the challenge. 
do you do you find uh, you know now that you so you've you've done it in in these kind of military and mm -hmm. government contexts, but also in private sector? Do you is there a sort of a level of difficulty on the technical side on one side for the other? Like do you do you find that sort of you know uh, extremists have a better you know security posture, or is it you know I mean is it easier now? Is it harder now? Do you, you know, do people sort of lock up their files more? You know, I, I don't know if that's even something you can compare necessarily. So back in the day when I, I mean, I'm talking back in like 2007, 2008 timeframe. Um, and I know that the people were doing this before that, but my experience start roughly in that time frame. It was much easier than it is today. Um, okay. People were passing stuff in the clear, you know, they were using, um, you'd look at, cases of child pornography back then that the law enforcement that law enforcement was working on they were doing uh, mailing drives back and forth and that kind of thing cds and dvds nowadays a lot of it is almost all exclusively online and it's not that the people's you know their their technical ability has gone up or their security awareness posture has gone up it has um thanks to individuals like snowden and others um that have right. done certain things that were very damaging to our country um, but if you look at it from the perspective of what happened in the industry, you have encryption that's huge, right? So right. you have Skype claiming to have end-to-end -end encryption or Zoom claiming to have end-to-end -end encryption. Um, yep. and, and everything is going to the encryption route, right? So right. that made it much more difficult. When I get on a hard drive and um, the entire hard drive is encrypted at boot instead of just files on it being encrypted, that's a right. vastly different uh, approach, yeah. right? And so, yes, that has changed, um, but I think it's more at the technical level okay. um, versus the people level. Okay. So from a um, sort of, you know, getting into the game, uh, you know, perspective, what types of uh, skills or interests or backgrounds would these branches of government be looking for when adding new people to their teams? Obviously, I know you're, you've been out of, out of the military frame, but, you know, ba based on what you remember, like, and I guess just universally speaking, like, what kind of things you know should you have in your background to make yourself desirable to these type of positions? Obviously, a passion for technology and mm -hmm. uh, the passion for this for the the space, right? You have to have an inquisitive mind. Um, if you're spending hours and and I mean hours and hours and hours digging through somebody's hard drive or a server, a mainframe, whatever it may be, right? Looking for those nuggets of information that takes perseverance and dedication. So it's a mindset thing. Um, you have to be able to handle the type. If you're going down the law enforcement military route, you're going to have to be able to handle the, um, the exposure to objectionable material. Mm -hmm. um, if your focus is more on the cybersecurity defense side, um, that kind of goes away. Um, but the flip side of that too is I think that you lose a little bit of the, uh, the tactical um, impact of your work, right? Because mm -hmm. um, you know countering malware that's affecting a Fortune 500 is one thing and is awesome. Mm -hmm taking down a child pornography ring or taking down a terrorist cell is a totally different application, right? Of course, so, yeah, yeah. But looking at the skills, that you have to have the, the technical background. Um, I would highly encourage people to, um, I mean, the field changes and evolves all the time. Back in our day, it was learning how to, to um, I mean, reassembling platters on a hard drive, right? You don't do that with mm -hmm. an SSD. Um, right. So going down the engine, you know, the, the software engineering or the, the cybersecurity uh, training routes and then just starting to learn on your own and getting into it. If you have the money, pay for a SANS class to see if that's something that you want to do, right? Tons of resources out there. Um, DC3's got a lot of resources on their website um, in other areas, but. Yep. You can also pay for a It's also on course. you though. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> not affiliated. They didn't pay me for that. So. Right, right. No, yeah. just uh, just dropping it. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk a bit. So let's let's talk from from individual because, uh, you know, you're talking about like yourself as an individual, you know, um, incident, you know, a forensics person. But, you know, we we also mentioned in the intro that you've you've led multidisciplinary teams of cyber analysts and developers mm-hmm. and linguists in the acquisition of C's digital media throughout Europe and Africa. Uh, and again, I know this is in your past, but could you tell me a little about, about this experience? What were some of the types of cases you were involved with? Is this more or less what you were talking about before? Uh, and if so, could you talk about like what it was, what it's like to sort of manage this team on these larger types of projects? So I could talk a little bit about that. Um, obviously, I'm very limited on to what level, but of course. what I can say is that there's the the experience of working is incredibly humbling in many ways um, because you're interacting and working with people with very vast skill sets, and they're very highly specialized in those skill sets. I mean, a network operator versus a you know, digital forensics individual who is who's expert at taking data off of a hard, for example, versus a language analyst who knows and understands the culture and that you're talking about. All these different components have to play well together to be able to generate that report at the end of the day that you hand to the decision maker that decides what to do with that data. Um, so for me, it was juggling a lot of different types of communications, um, being able to talk to the analyst, the language analyst at the cultural level where they're at, being aware of their needs and requirements and what they're bringing to the table versus the technical requirements that are coming from our counterparts. Um, one of the biggest um, challenges was also the difference in technical capability of the partners. Um, you see this in the private sector within the commercial sphere. You have um, Large, very large companies, uh, organizations that have a lot of money to put towards SOC teams, and they so they might have a very well-defined SOC structure with tier one through four. They might have a dedicated threat intelligence team and dedicated um, forensics incident responders. And then you can flip the coin and be working with another client that does not have any of the above, and they pretty much are looking at you going, what do I do? And you say, okay, do you have a firewall at least? Okay, what are the rules? Like, what do you guys got going on? Do you have an yeah. EDR? Can I go through the logs and see that? So that that translates incredibly well over to the government side as well in those activities. It's being able to manage multiple disciplinary teams um, across different focuses and being able to be able to consume and bring all that data together into one cohesive format that you can deliver to people. Okay, uh, we've had, we uh, so we've had uh, digital forensics, mobile forensics experts on the show before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talking about from uh, private sector and court-based forensics work, and I and I do kind of want to talk to you because, you know, obviously Quillab is doing stuff more on, on that side, but can you uh, talk a little more? You had mentioned that, you know, obviously you're now you're sort of more protecting enterprises from, from malware and stuff, but can you sort of give me some, some differences about, you know, private public sector forensics versus, uh, you know, military government forensics in that regard in terms of, you know, what your targets are, what your methods are, uh, just the sort of overall day-to-day difference, you know, like I said, uh, you know, with the military stuff, you have a much more sort of uh, sharp, you know, uh, uh, mission to be accomplished. Whereas, you know, uh, it might be sort of more financial in a, in a private sector. But what are some other examples of differences? So, at the tech, going back to what we said earlier, the technical level, it's pretty much the same, right? They're getting right. the same. You're getting the same training, and I think the DoD has done a really good job. Um, the U.S. government as a whole has done a really good job of of saying, okay, we learned these capabilities, we learned these skill sets, now let's push that down to the private sector or push that out to corporate America and say, look, you guys need to up your game in this area. Yep. Um, like NSA released Ghidra, 
um, last year. Um, stuff like that that keeps happening in the space is awesome. We love it. Um, makes me, you know, super happy to see that happening. So the technical skill set is roughly the same. Um, what happens is policy, and it's more at the procedure level. Um, by that, if you're in a combat zone and you're doing digital forensics for in support of X team or X organization or unit, whatever it is that you're out there with, um, the rules of engagement on in that kind of an environment are vastly different than, say, if you're helping a corporation in who has a presence in Europe deal with an incident, a forensics case. They've got GDPR requirements. They have data right. protection issues and stuff. Um, what you're actually allowed to look at, are you allowed to look at the the, uh, the, the cookies on the browser history and all that right. other stuff? Because that's private data, right? Um, am I even allowed to share that with the threat intelligence team because they haven't been read on? So there's all these different components that make it incredibly hard to um, to migrate between the two, mm-hmm. um, but also a lot of fun because you get to learn. Um, you know, I, when I started my journey as a young forensicator um, doing what I did back then, I never once thought I would have to step outside of the technical bubble because I was like, okay, I'm in the technical, I'm, I'm extracting, I'm doing, I'm, I'm having fun, I'm using just, case just and all these other the tools. Things. Yeah, got to do the things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to nowadays, you can't just do that. When, when you're an uh, investigator and you're going into a company, you have to understand clear cut up at the top what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Sure. Same applies in the government sector, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's U.S. person data, if it's... Um, depends on on the operational constraints that that are placed upon you who owns the data do you or do you not right so those are all fun things but um it's a vastly flexibility so you asked earlier what it takes from to be a good uh, forensicator in this sphere Mm -hmm. um or a forensics operator it flexibility intellectual flexibility and uh, technical flexibility as well yeah and it it seems like it's so many different types of uh, problem solving that I imagine if you're the sort of person that you know used to like to play you know the sort of point and click you know problem solver games or or just you know use that side of your brain like I'm sure it's a it's 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 just perfect for you. You're absolutely correct. That is absolutely yeah. the the driver and the passion behind it. That's why I love it and that's why yeah. uh my the colleagues of mine um yeah we <laughs> point and click games and stuff like that tearing yep. into yep that's tons of similarities there in in the drive and passion. <laughs> Yeah, get lamp. Um, <laughs> so um, I wanted to talk to uh, about a thing that you mentioned in, or we mentioned in your your bio. Uh, you you talked about the importance of comprehensive threat information sharing uh, internally and externally. So last week we had a guest on uh, Cody Cornell from Swimlane who talked about mm-hmm. uh, the open exchange of security information between organizations. And I want to know sort of about how your specific mission works in this regard. Uh, what are what are you aiming for in terms of threat sharing and collaboration? How does it work practically and what is the sort of stated goal of it? So that brings up a, a great point in going to our earlier conversations too in the shift in forensics, right? In the mm-hmm. shift in this field and how we did things. Back in the day, um, you, you know, if I was supporting law enforcement, if I was supporting military, whatever, you go through a hard drive, you're going to rip out all the data that you care about. You're going to encapsulate it, throw it on a shared drive, throw it on a hard drive, whatever, and you're just going to pass it up. And yep. from there, little teams are going to, individual components are going to take a look at that and do what they need to do and keep passing it up the chain. Um, and then you might get something circling back to you with uh, like a block list or a blacklist, right? A list of um, different things to look out for um, and flag immediately if you ever see them. In today's world, data has, I mean, ex- back when I started, it was normal to have a 100 gigabyte hard drive, right, to 150 gig yeah. hard drive. That's not the case anymore, as we both know. And um, not only is it not 
the case on the individual devices, it's no longer localized. It's it's spread out, right? So the vast sure. amount of data that you have to go through and curate, it makes it impossible for you to just pick up an image. So you rip an image of a laptop. Let's say it's a two terabyte two terabyte um, image that you're taking of a laptop. That two terabyte image might compress down to, I don't know, um, seven hundred gigs, right? Mm -hmm. Seven hundred gigs try and push that across a pipe. How long is that going to take you <laughs> yeah, to, to yeah. push that, right? And then now right. you're talking real time when people want decisions yesterday, when they, you have money going out the door because it's a hack related or you have people's yep. lives online because it's law enforcement or counterterrorism related, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Right. That breaks it down to the need to proceduralize and split out the process mm -hmm. and determine the individual points that you need to be able to share and push out as quickly as possible between organizations and teams. Um, so no longer can I just give you a huge bulk dump of everything and say, look, my job is done. Go with it. Right. I have to do the processing and say, okay, mm. you truly care about this. MITRE ATT&CK framework is a great example of that. Yeah. The, uh, we're, we're using that heavily in our platform, and we're using it because it's, it's in exponentially increasing the ability for us to communicate about different topics. Right. If I'm talking about executable, I no longer have to sit there and give you a long explanation of what that executable does. Or go. if I'm tagging data how I interpret my tags for you, right? I can just say, it's got this MITRE attack reference number. There you go. ID, yep. boom. Oh, yeah. And they immediately know that executable can do this. And it's it's like this, or it might have three or four different because it has different capabilities, like if it's, you know, command and control node, whatever. Um, so you have that ability. So that translates to, you need to have a vector and a mechanism to be able to translate and share that information. So Swimlane's doing an awesome job. I'm very familiar with them and, mm -hmm. and love those guys. Uh, I'm looking forward to partnering with them maybe. Um, but from what we're doing is we're focusing on the same area saying, what are the commonly available, um, communication vectors for threat mm. intelligence artifacts? Okay. So you have MISP, you have, um, you have Stix Taxi and OTX and all those other different frameworks that are available, uh, mm -hmm. and transport mechanisms that are available to share threat information data. You okay. also have vendor specific, um, uh, capabilities, right? So, um, don't want to start name dropping a bunch of vendors out there, but there's, there's, you know, Feel free. Connect, there's <laughs> connections to others. Uh, one of our sure. partners, Intel 471, you know, they all have their way of collecting, mm -hmm. categorizing, cataloging their threat information data. And what we do, what we're looking at doing is saying, how is the easiest way that I can get from the operator, the guy doing the forensics job from the network um, incident responder from the threat intelligence team? How can we get that data in a unified way and share it back and forth? Um, obviously, again, we, we can't keep passing back terabytes of data. Right. We've got to be at the level where we're sharing truly actionable, real-time live infor uh, information. Okay. So that's not, that's not just information sharing, but also uh, a sort of standardizing and, and, and you know, um, streamlining of the way you sort of report the data. Like you said, you're not going to have to sit there and explain every single procedure if you have the, the MITRE ATT&CK uh, you know, matrix to, to help you with that. Yep. Yeah. We, we that's exactly right. Yeah. We love the MITRE ATT&CK. Uh, yeah. yeah, we uh, on our InfoSec Resources blog, we have uh, dozens of articles that each one is is sort of a breakdown of a different you know MITRE ATT&CK matrix I points mean, and stuff like that. And they're they're great fun. When they came out with that and released it, it was a few years ago. I was like, where the hell has this been? How come yeah, I haven't? Had I know this? it I seems so. Like, it seems so obvious. Like yes. <laughs> it, it seems like it, it seems like it should have already been with us. Yeah, correct. It's like wait a minute. We already did this for for you know networking protocols. We right. already have the exact same thing. Why? Why do we? And now everybody so gets long? to have it. Yeah, yeah. Now everybody gets to have it. The, share the wealth. Right. So for so, us, it's about being that that data aggregator and um, okay connector. That's interesting too, because yeah, that, that I mean that's that's a a sort of 
related but but different um, take on on what Cody was talking about with regards to security sharing, where he was talking about like sharing, uh, you know, previous breaches and hacks and and best practices of how things mm-hmm. were dealt with, and and that would that that seemed to me more like the way like you know police departments in separate counties might share like criminal data to sort of catch a serial killer <laughs> or something like that. Whereas this this is sort of like a standardizing of of procedure in order to sort of speed up, like you said, the process of of the the biggest of big data. Yeah, and it's giving you a playbook, right? So, mm-hmm. or, or, sorry, a workspace. So right. our, our focus is not on getting down to procedures and processes. That The individual teams can do that, right? And they our job is to be amorphic and be able to, to, to let them within our platform or whatever platform they choose to use that we're connecting with and, and exchanging data with, let them have the ability to have a unified place where they can come together and analyze and investigate data um, in ways that make sense to their organization. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do that, you have to be a data integrator, right? You have to be right. a tool integrator. And our focus is more on the people workflow, the collaboration between the individual teams and people. Um, you mentioned earlier, what are some of the challenges um, that I faced when I was in, in you know, working for the, the government, US government mm-hmm. in Europe and running those teams and doing that kind of work. Data exchange was a huge problem and okay. it still is a huge problem. And I don't think the US government or NATO or whoever you want to throw a label on I don't think anybody has it totally nailed down and that's what we're trying to, uh, hmm. our vision, our passion is to nail down the best way to do data exchange and, and collaboration. Um, and it has to have that technical component, right? So my hat as a techie back in the day is still applicable, right? So you right. have that yeah. passion, that love for what that individual MITRE attack um, mapping is to and say, okay, how can I best represent that for somebody else over here that needs to work with it in a different context? And from there, make the world a safer, better place. That's, I mean, that at the end of the day, that's that's the goal here, right? Right. That'd be a great place to end that show, but I have more questions for you. <laughs> um, cool. So I wanted to talk about another point on your uh, uh, on your bio about, um, and and you're gonna have to explain this to me, the you know, as, as if a six year old mm-hmm. were were asking the question. But oh, uh, tell me about the use of of graph modeling in in threat analysis. This is another thing that you said you're very interested in. What what aspect of threat analysis would would this you know change and how would it improve the practice of incident response? So graph modeling in our context is how we can best display the data, interact with the data. Mm-hmm. Um, on the I'm talking behind the scenes in the, in the core, right? The platform core, how the data is being manipulated and interact with. Um, but it also comes down to how that data is being visualized and displayed and the frequency, the the live updating that is that's happening with analysts. In practice, this means that when I put data into Colab, I want to know that it's immediately being, which Colab does, is immediately, if I inputted, say, 50,000 different IP addresses into Colab, let's look at it from IP domain type spacing. Um, Colab is automatically going through and it's going to be pulling together all the different data points that it knows about that touch those. IPs and also subsets of those IPs. So if you have an Intel report that came in from your Intel provider, um, your threat intelligence provider that you have within the system, you're immediately going to get notified to that. The other thing I was going to notify you to is the, the external tools that you have connected. So if you're using domain tools, so or if you're using Shodan, for example, it's going to automatically go through, hey, Shodan, task these 50,000, go out there, pull the data back, bring it in and, and display it contextually. That's all happening automatically in the, by the platform. And where that becomes critical is that within the link analysis viewer within Colab, um, and I'm not trying to get tool specific here, I'm just saying this is how Please. we're doing it. Yeah, um, absolutely. You're able to, to visually track through, okay, ingest point, here's where I saw it, here's where it's going. 
and this is why I care about it in a visual way, and that's bringing the human part to it. Hmm. So the only way that we could truly do this, there's a lot of databases out there that do really good bang-up job, and I'm not ragging on them um, for, for their specific use case, right? The problem is a lot of those are not human-centric. Um, I love Splunk, been using Splunk forever. Um, right. Love Elasticsearch, been using it forever. But the truth is that unless you're the guy writing the queries and the guy that's looking at the data in the database all the time, that doesn't really translate very well to others. Hmm. Right? Okay. Um, to non-Splunk experts or non-Elastic okay. experts. That's why they have dashboards. But those dashboards can be really hard to configure. Um, and every time you do any change to your backend, you got to update your dashboard and so forth. But Lib says, look, we'll be the visualizer for you of that. And we're going to bring all these other different data components in that you didn't have access to. So if you're mm. you're like me, uh, an incident responder or a forensics investigator, if I need to do dynamic analysis of, of a piece of malware, I'm going to send it to VMRay or I'm going to send it to Cuckoo, right? Okay. And if I'm doing static analysis, I'm going to send it to Ghidra or Binary Ninja or whatever other tool that you're using to do your static analysis. Mm -hmm. And then all those different data points that those tools produce, bring it back in. And now I can visualize it and look at it. And I'm not gotcha. just looking at a tab view. I'm seeing the actual interactions between those data, different data points. And then you throw in stuff we were talking about earlier, like yep. minor attack mapping. Right. And now all of a sudden the kill chains become blatantly obvious to everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I like this too, because it, it sort of makes me think of the way, you know, people say they're, you know, they're worried about, you know, AI or whatever, sort <laughs> of taking away security jobs. But you're, as you're dealing with sort of like, data at this size like you need these kind of like automation methods and these types of things you know they're still going to need people to sort of understand all this stuff like that's we haven't gotten to that point where you can both you know ai can both sort of take the data and then say oh yeah here's a great solution for it so exactly right you still need that human intuition and yep. it's, it's why you still need why the government still has forensics investigators right and right uh, analysts because you still need that human logic and intuition to be able to look at all the different, you know, all the different data points and say, I'm seeing a trend here that a computer just can't pick out, or I'm right. seeing a pattern here that makes me say, I want to go look at that deeper, whereas a computer would just totally overlook it because it didn't match a certain set yeah. of rules. Right? Yeah, you're seeing human nature in there. Hey, until Johnny Five comes alive, you know, we're not going to be able to... <laughs> that could be a while. <laughs> we're going to be doing this ourselves for a bit. <laughs> Oh man, we are definitely the same age. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> a lot of people watching this might not get that reference. Anyway, uh, YouTube folks, YouTube, check it out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um, I want to talk. Uh, you know, this Cyberwork uh, podcast. We want to talk about uh, jobs and careers and so forth. So, uh, for listeners who are interested in in pursuing careers in in you know digital forensics or instance response or related things, what are some skills, experience, certifications they should be? looking into now to get into the game? Uh, like if you were hiring someone at Quolab for these type of positions, like what are some things you would absolutely want to see on that person's resume or hear in an interview or see in a cover letter that would make you say, this is, this person has the right, the right, the right background or whatever. So I'm not a traditional interviewer, um, primarily because of the opportunities that I was given in my life. Um, in, in my career, like I, again, I was a linguist. I didn't have a formal training in computer science. I had taken a lot of computer science classes, had a lot of passion and involvement in it, but I was given the opportunity to be, um, to break into forensics and become where I am. So I like to see, I'm looking at it more from a personality type focus um, and I'm not looking at check boxes on, on a resume. Mm -hmm. um, but the check boxes that I do like to see, um, and I think a lot of my colleagues would probably agree with me in liking to see, 
is definitely some sort of uh, computer science background. Okay. Um, not programmers specifically. Uh, those that can be helpful, but programmers have a different mindset, right? They have mm-hmm. a different. Um, they're makers, not breakers. Um, right. Right. And and mm-hmm. can't fault them. We need them, right? Yeah. Um, and they're the guys that I go to to automate X Y Z function that I need, right? Um, but I'm looking for that analytic mindset. I'm looking for people who have taken a lot of courses, probably network forensics or network security. So security plus and all the security type trainings okay. and then taking it the next step and said, okay, I'm interested in forensics and I want to take courses on, for example, um, Udemy has different uh, courses available to them for, okay. uh, for example, acquiring a hard drive. How do you use basic DD or whatever you're going to use to, to, get a forensics image of a hard drive. What does a forensics image really actually look like? And there's great training. Uh, again, I go back to SANS. Um, I'm, again, not being paid, sponsored, or affiliated with them. I just happen to love their training and their products. Um, I've used them for years, both for myself and members of my team. And I can't say enough how that is. If you can afford the couple thousand dollars for the course, take that. You go into any, pretty much any police department or the U.S. government, you know, and say, hey, I have this, that starts the conversation that you need to have. And then you can back that up with those other things I was talking about. So the forensics um, and the incident responder courses that SANS offers, I definitely would recommend people taking a look at. Or through their local university, right? If you have the same thing through your local university, if they offer incident response courses Mm -hmm. or cybersecurity courses, practical, tactical application, not the policy side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so yeah, as we wrap up today, um, we talked a little bit about Quolab, but, but sort of give, give the, the full pitch. What's it, what's it all about? What are some exciting projects you've got uh, going right now uh, and, and so forth? Yeah. So uh, we company just actually moved from, we were in Europe, we were in uh, mm-hmm. Frankfurt, Germany, and we just okay. actually launched and relaunched in, in the U S and we're headquartered and, and, you know, proud to be American uh, rocking and rolling here and, making uh, waves as far as we anticipate or the way we see it in, in our sphere. Um, we have a data fusion analysis investigation platform. Okay. And what that does is it fuses your internal and external uh, data feeds, data sources. So internally, that could be your, your seam, your Splunk, your um, whatever your data lake is that you have, uh, as well as your tools internally. So we talked about some of them for dynamic and static analysis and malware. Could be other types of tools that you have within your your ecosystem that you want to use on a on a procedural basis fuses all that into one unified platform along with all the external threat intelligence data that you might want to have uh, brought in whether you're paying for it um, whether it's open source data missed uh, like miss circle or something like that all those different data sources get fused together and then it gives you the a platform uh, uh, a environment where you can go in and you can start analyzing that data and investigating and tearing apart the different components and building out cases where you can track in your threats and incidents, as well as track and think of like an APT repository where you can have an internal uh, tracking of the different APT actors that you witness and seen within your environment, which gives you also historical knowledge and historical tracking of all the cases and incidents that you've been involved on. The purpose of behind doing everything that I just mentioned technically mm-hmm. is bridging the divide that exists between teams. Uh, teams okay. can get siloed a lot, be, be it policy, right. data, or whatever. Sure. Um, but bringing back, so if you look at a Fortune 500, it has a very well-established SOC environment. 
being able to, to bridge that gap between their threat intelligence teams, their malware versus engineers, their networking ops guys, their SOC tier one through four guys, saying, y'all need to be on the same play field when it comes to responding and um, actually investigating these, these um, events. So instead of having your threat intelligence analysts collecting all the different threat intelligence, parsing it out, and then saying, here, malware analysts, here, everybody, you take this data into your domain and look at it. And then the malware guy gets that data and he's forced to collect, you know, to, to collate that against his or to compare it against the data that he's seeing when he's going through a different a given piece of malware and then saying, Hey, take this data back over here. We're wiping all that and saying they can all work on one unified platform um, in the manner that they need to with the tools that they need to. So the platform offers different tools. Um, so we have a malware tool that focuses specifically on, on the, the needs that they have. You have the link analysis tool that is great for um, your SOC guys, your um, your malware reverse, in, er, sorry, your incident responders and others. Mm-hmm. So bringing that unified platform together for them for, to to empower collaboration between the teams is the goal with one node. And then from there, Collab takes it to the next step and says, okay, so we got all this data fusion happening. We got all these different data points coming in, all these tool interactions. And we have all these teams now working and collaborating together in one big node, one big happy family now saying, okay, what happens now when you want to start creating communities of interest? What happens when you want to start crowdsourcing your cybersecurity? Say you have uh, banks who are partnered together and they're doing cybersecurity together. Those banks, say five different banks with five different collab nodes, could all of a sudden start sharing data. And I'm not just talking about sharing um, like a Yara report or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about sharing cases. So if I'm working on a case that so I'm I'm bank A and I'm getting attacked and I have a case and I'm putting data in there and we're, we're tracking through it logs and all this other different data and all our notes and everything. I say, okay, I need to be able to share this with my other three partners, B, C, D, and D. Well, I can just, with one click of a button in Quillab, if I have that, or that network sharing agreement in place, I can send those cases over to them. And as they work on them, it updates my case. So you just crowdsource your cybersecurity, right? Mm-hmm. So that takes a mindset shift, by the way. Um, right. <laughs> Is as you probably know in this in this domain, uh, people um, are very pro sharing and can also be very anti sharing depending yeah, on the, the case. Sure. So we took the, both those into consideration when coming out and building this, and said, okay, now we have to create what we call the grid, is the exchange mechanism with very constrained and limited capabilities, uh, mm-hmm. if if needed. So mm-hmm. you can you know put people in a box, say I'm only going to share this type of data with right. this individual. I'm going to share everything over here with this other individual and so forth, right? Uh, being able to, to, to separate and, and control that data um, sharing arrangement is what um, we built in there. So that's Quillab. It okay. took me a lot, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's complicated, but it's a lot of fun. Big process. All right. So one last question. If listeners want to know more about uh, Dan Young or Quillab, where can they go online? Quillab.com. Easy peasy. Uh, sure. Dan, thank you. Uh, or get the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Email me. And I'll send you the shirt. How about that? Perfect. Uh, so thank you so, so much for your time today. This was uh, super fun and super in, uh, invaluable, I think. Thank, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Chris. I definitely appreciate your time, too. Thank you. All right. And thank you all uh, for listening and watching. If you enjoyed today's video, you can find many more on our YouTube page. Just go to YouTube.com and type in Cyber Work with InfoSec to check out our collection of tutorials, interviews, and past webinars. If you'd rather have us in your ears during your workday, all of our videos are also available as audio podcasts. Just search CyberWork with InfoSec in your podcast catcher of choice. 
for a free month of the InfoSec Skills platform discussed at the top of today's show. Just go to InfoSecInstitute.com slash skills and sign up for an account. And in the coupon code, type cyberwork, all one word, all small letters, no spaces, for your free month. Thank you once again to Dan Young and Quolab, and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll speak to you next week.